0: Especially uh, especially, first of all, Eli for what's already promising to be an extremely well coordinated uh, trip and yeah, I think he brought uh, western efficiency to, to places that didn't know what efficiency was so big as kayak for everything until now and, and how much work he put in uh, I'd like to thank my son Yaakov for the work he put into it and for, there were many other people behind it. I think David was very involved in uh, being supportive. Uh, and first of all, on a personal note, the, the trip really started as a very personal thing for me. I grew up, my father was from uh, Kovna. He grew up in Kovna, he got married, had children, lived in uh, Kovna, and um, it was very much part of the, the culture I grew up in. I always wanted to come see it. Uh, somebody had promised me to take me on a trip this was a person who lived there himself much younger than my father about a year ago I, I realized it'll never happen and uh, Yaakov very much urged to put together a trip like this so yes yeah, everybody for coming and to make the trip possible yes yeah, I'd like to speak a little bit of a broader introduction on the meaning of what we're seeing and so on and so forth I first was start by saying that Clalyserol had has or have has now I could say three broad focal points for Yiddishkeit there was Kehillah focus which was typical of uh, Oberland Germany Spider communities for the most part um, and there was one type of focal point. There was the emergence of Hasidus, which focal point was was focal point was Rebbes, and sort of transcended local kehillas and was focused around the rebbe movement and so on. That was typical of Poland, Galicia, um, and parts of Hungary, all parts of Hungary especially. And then you have a Third uh, focal point, which was the yeshivas, and that is typical of um, parts of Russia, uh, Lithuania, and uh, vague areas of what's called Belarus, and so on. Um, the, the three different focal points each one has the milos and the um, each one comes with its strengths and weaknesses. And, um, for us, no matter what our personal heritage was uh, most everybody here has somehow or other come through the yeshiva world that has become a a dominant feature of today's world even though there is shifting and so on we'll speak more when we get to each yeshiva about the special um, yichur of each yeshiva but briefly I would like to point out um, three four kufis in the development of modern yeshivas. You have Volazhen, which started um, the world of yeshivas in the following way. Until Volazhen was there, yeshivas were basically um, very personal. The was around for a town. He was a big-time chacham. Talmidim came to him, the town, as part of, of taking Mezzarov, agreed to support X amount of Talbidim and he had a yeshiva, they came to learn about a marshaah Mashah died, there was no more yeshiva The yeshiva was the was Like uh, and, and so on uh, you, ne- you didn't have a yeshiva as an institution It tended to be very local In the communities that it had it, there was sort of an educational system for people in the community It didn't transcend its person, its specific area and that was what a yeshiva was. Volashen changed that, and we'll speak more when we get there uh, tomorrow, but it's Hashem. Elijah was an institution. It transcended the It was meant to last. It was meant for Talmidim far and wide. It was meant to be totally independent of to the community it was serving it was meant to sort of become a dominant force in its own right and not just a way to produce Rabbanim and so on and so forth There was a first stage in uh, yeshiva in, in what, what's today what we call yeshiva towards the end of the 19th, centuries, uh, 19th century you began to have other yeshivas being founded and you begin to have a struggle of the Musa system to become part of it. And we might speak more about it in Slavotka, but by and large it was um, a Rev. Salat that was active in that period of time. His talmide, most notably the Alta Slavotka, began to be mashpi on yeshivas, to have Musa in the yeshivas. Eklest was a very important part of that. We'll speak about it later when we get to it. But I guess the Musa movement, in terms of its influence on yeshivas, it hadn't started as such. Musa, Musa Rabbi Sol vision, vision as part and parcel of um Kalal Yisrael, Israel. would have special places to go on Musa and so on and so forth. It was probably Aldous Labotka who recognized that you need to have it become integrated in the yeshiva system. It met resistance for the following reasons. First of all, any other, any new limut to bring into the uh, yeshiva system, people were very suspect about it. They felt it would detract from the learning. It would create a whole nother uh, center, epicenter of, of activity. They were wary of that. The mashkiach became a very, very important figure in the yeshivas also began to have an opinion about which Talmidim were not worried to be in yeshiva. Talmidim whose days he felt a off, he was not very happy with, and they would throw them out. That brought about tremendous resentment. It was a feeling that there would be a new foci of power in the yeshiva, and, and it would be somebody who was not the dominating Torah figure per se, but it was something else. They also began creating a system where Bach, we are were closer to him, and so on, definitely different yeshivas. So you had all of this resistance, and that was typical of the end of uh, the, the 1800s, beginning of 1900s. World War One broke out in 1914, and it devastated European Jewry. A lot of the Chorbruchni was due to that. It basically destroyed all the Kehillahs. What happened was the front was uh, in most of this part of Europe, and it went back and forth between Germans, Russians, Austrians, and Unosu. And a people did not want to stick around to watch the action; they they rather not did not be in the in the line of fire. They moved inwards. There was a second reason: the Tsar, his profound wisdom, reason that the Jews might want to go to the Germans. First of all, because Germans were more civilized than the Russians. Secondly, um, they, they were a bit kinder than the Tsar, and uh, he felt that the Jews, when speaking Yiddish, had a kinship with them. So the, the Tsar exiled many communities, Alita, into deep Russia. So for five, six years, these shivas were disbanded, destroyed. I mean, there were fragments and segments and all sorts of bits and pieces, different places, but for five, six years, it was not a natural matzav. And when they came back, there were a lot of issues. There were issues of um, getting it together again. It's much easier to break up a place than to start it again. There were issues of personnel. Some people had stayed, ran the yeshiva, and then they were um, not... So when when the other group came back, Miborois, who has first rights, and so on and so forth, It created problems, but the yeshivas regrouped, and from 1920 to 1940 approximately was the era of yeshivas, when everybody, whatever stories are heard from parents and grandparents about yeshivas, the yeshiva world, that's the period of time we're talking about. It came to maturity, the great names, the great yeshivas, everything you're familiar with, usually between 20 to 40. Um, that's the dominant period the rosh yeshivas i had the Rebbe i had well, for that period of time the names you've heard the yeshivas were well, from that period of time and that's those are basically the four four broad periods of time uh, of the of the what we call the yeshiva world i want to speak a little bit about the geography i only spoke about it yesterday you'll correct me if i'm wrong the first thing is as americans we grow up believing boundaries as being a very fixed entity. And um, there were colonies in America. Colonies had clearly defined boundaries. They became a country, and American boundaries were all there. Um, they were, the, the American, bound, they, you know, we grew up there, that the boundaries we recognize were always there, and that's that. Europe had a very, very different uh, feel to it. Uh, boundaries in Europe were meaningless. Um, and for many reasons and i just just briefly trace some history first of all it was very difficult to run a large country when you don't have communications transportation or anything of that nature to make it feasible so um to run a country that was large was impossible. rome was was an empire for that reason that they knew how to do it but it took extraordinary uh, brains of of a certain type to do it so Europe basically especially this part of Europe was a sort of it started with little fiefdoms duchies it started with then then you started having grand duchies uh, um, and a lot of them were the center of power was the local, uh, the, the, the local power. They banded together, got a king. Various times, various places, the king had different amounts of power. So countries were kind of very fluid, but the regions retained a lot of their character, and, and so on and so forth. Um, as you mentioned yesterday, a dominant, a dominant uh, country possibly the biggest between let's say 1400 to the end of the 1700s was Poland, Lithuania. They were a commonwealth of two countries, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and Poland. They And what's called Belarus today was very much part of Lita and that's who they were. It was part of culturally and 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 everything else was part of that. At the end of the 1700s, at 1700s, Poland Lithuania became um, second-class minor league players, and major league players began to take bites out of it. And the major league players were Russia, and Prussia, slash Germany, and Austria-Hungria. And they began to nibble away, and in short order, by 1795, they had disbanded the entire thing, and they had um, swallowed up. Uh, Russia had swallowed up, Lithuania, much um, of Poland, uh, Germany had taken a bite, Austria had taken a bite, and they were gone. The, um, the, the Polish tried to re- revolt a few amount of times, back and forth, on and off. But basically, so, so this was its own cultural entity of what we would call Lita, but, and certainly culturally, Lithuania and here, the same, same type of people, same type of mentality, same type of mahalach. Um But they were under the czar, and that's why all the stories, all the stories in those days, speak about the czar because that was what it was about. The czar was not happy in swallowing so many Jews at that time. It, it really gave him a big stomach ache, and he began to think of what he could do to um, control them, make the li- make make their lives a little bit. Um, he, he tried to urge Ali out to America. It basically, he created what was called a Pale of Settlements, that any of the Jews that he had swallowed can't move out into Russia proper, except, with, with certain exceptions. And that's why when people speak of Russia, all the Jews living in Russia, were talking about Belarus, Ukraine, rather than what's Russia proper. There were, there were very, very few Jews in Petersburg, and Moscow, Moscow and so on, was mostly here this was all in the pale of settlements more or less and so what we called Russian Jewry really was here and further up north and so on but but within a certain frame the vast interior of Russia was pretty much it it did not have many Jews there. Um, During World War One so um, there there was the Russian Revolution, Russian Revolution caused, um, they, they did not allow yeshivas, um, they clamped down very heavily on a lot of, on, on, on everything Yiddish, caused so many Jews ran away, those who stayed basically couldn't raise the next star. What also happened was, um, there was a short time when when Belarus and Lithuania. when they they then had revolutions. They then joined up the Soviet Socialist Republic. And then Poland decided to take a little nibble out of here. And they fought the Russians. They actually won. And they ended up with a big chunk of here. So all the so-called litvish yeshivas between 1920 to 1940 were technically in Poland, including Vilna and the Mir, Klesk, maranovich all of those command were technically Poland. You, you couldn't be in Russia and have a an yeshiva, that was gone, um, because they did not allow it. And Lithuania had lost a big chunk of itself to the Poles. The Poles were much better fighters and uh, took a big bite out of Lithuania. You also couldn't travel from Lithuania to Poland. Um, they, they had no relations, no diplomatic relations. You had to go through another country entirely. You couldn't go with this passport. So, if so that you had for those twenty years, there actually was a certain bifurcation of the proper Lithuanian Shivas, which are only four of them: Slabotka, Kelm, which was tiny. We'll maybe talk about it at some point. Panovich um, and Telz. They were what's called Lithuania proper, was Lithuania all along, and, but that was it they were cut off from where most of the people were, which was this area, which was Belarus. So so the, if you'll take a look at, at the documents in the from twenty to forty, the all the Litigashivas have Poland on it because that's where they came from. But it was culturally in very, very different. Um, the culturally the Lithuanian Jews the the, the, the uh, were I guess you know it's hard to be uh, stereotype but you have uh, they were much more calm than Polish Hungarian Jews uh, or Ukrainian. They tended to be more uh, you know cerebral. They they you know things of uh, learning was important for that reason. They looked down at the at the. Emotional sentimentality of the Hasidim—they—they they were very different. They were a lot more reserved, and so on. Hasidus did make some impact on Russia, which again, Belarus means Russia basically for for for, for uh, Like he said, it's called Rassain and Rassain and Ussialovana. The, um, the, the the three Hasidus that managed to penetrate, for better, for worse, was Chabad, which took on a very, very, um, it, it took on, the mentality was much more Litvish, learning was the most important element, restraining your emotions, focusing it with your mind, it, it was, that was very clear that, um, Karlin was was a was a, 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 a Hasidist, that was a Belarus Hasidist, um, and Finally, uh, there was also Slonim, which was Baranovich, actually was for those years, for 2040, that was the center of, of, of Slonim and Hasidus, the Cheshuvim or Baranovich. They all of them, but certainly Slonim and Chabad had a very, very strong Litwish character, and they were different. You you're very clearly, recognizably different. Um, another just interesting point that... It's not clear why it's called White Russia, Belarus, but if you look at the trees over here, and the bark is white, um, the, the, I forgot the name of the tree, you would know probably the name of the tree. Th- that's one guess, if you'll see these, these are ubiquitous, these trees. Um, that's one reason why I might call White Russia. But upon him. And as far as we're concerned, Belarus and Litte are what we call Litte in first, Culturally it's the cradle of the yeshivas and um, each yeshiva had its own special um, in characters and characteristics that we'll speak about when we get to each Yeshiva hashem. But that's why it's very important today, and today because there's a sort of an intermingling of different cultures, everyone's borrowed from the other, it has made the literature learning and style has made inroads in Siddhartha world, this has made Big inroads so in the literature world. Kahila is an emerging topic, but, but one more, one more point of note. And again, I, Ellie touched on it briefly yesterday. If you'll notice, the yeshivas were all in hick towns. Um, the reason was there were a few reasons. One reason was big cities had a way of having much distraction there's very little to distract you in a hick town and therefore everything's focused on yeshiva you come to the big city there's a lot going on and therefore um, it was felt that it's a very poor place to make shiva. two the lit the, the, the jury in the big cities had become less and less observant as time went on the inroads of the Haskalah of the bun they tended to focus on big cities. You had cultural centers, you had universities, theaters, operas, libraries, you were able to get critical massive groups together, and therefore there was a lot of hashpahs coming in the big cities. So that was something negative. Also in the big cities you had a lot of politics, in different kehillahs, Rabbanim, and getting into a big city would mean you would have political issues and, and you would be walking Possibly a minefield. Um, Third, fourth, small towns were able to support yeshivas in many ways. Um, In the early days, when people ate by townspeople, they felt a sort of a kinship. They looked out for the partner. They rented rooms. We'll we'll see as we talk about it later. But it was much was feasible in a small town. People tried to make yeshivas in the big cities. They were short-lived. Minsk had on and off and um, Kovna did not have they had a colo, Slavotka so is a suburb and it's clearly away from it. Um, what? Yeah, but it but 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 it was also it was an on and off. It, it it's Vilna it wasn't able to pull it off. All all the big cities never had a yeshiva for all the reasons we spoke about before. And um, Lakewood supposedly was one of the reasons why I went there. It's not clear, I mean, he happened to get a building there, There was there waiting. Um, whatever his dreams were of having in a small town, there, there are chelukideas if that's still true today or not. We can ask the liquiders here what they think about it. But the yeshivas krochen was, was and That's why they, they kept yeshivas away from big cities. Um, Slonim did not have one, Baranovich did have one, and so on. If you take a look at the history, that's, that's where it went upon it uh, So that's, that's sort of an overview of um, where we came from. In, in other words, almost everything that we have today, we know that it came from there. And we'll speak on each issue, but we'll try to speak more specifically about the people there. Uh, okay.